Previously in the Elendred. Neral's daughter, Andrea, summons a ban on a lark with some high school seniors, but the summoning goes badly awry, and the ban maims the other students. Fleeing, Andrea boards a carrier for Tyr mere hours before the Ereshkigal summoning. Gabriel dispatches Eris and Kay to Yokaido, and interrogates Yusuf with his new aide, Kylan. He learns that Kamar spent time at a junk shop called Eamon's Accessories, and makes plans to meet Norell there. The civil violence in Halsper heats up in the aftermath of Ereshkigal. The Free Wolves raid Gravenwell Center for magicians to recruit. Bridget frees Safia, but she runs out of anti-magic to deal with the cell security, and chooses to leave Yusuf behind. Alliance Counterterrorism begins collecting persons of interest related to the summoning. They kidnap Norell and apprehend Alondra at Halsper Interstellar Spaceport. Bridget and the Free Wolves interrupt, however, slaying the Act agents and allowing Alondra to leave. Questions? Was that last episode summary? Uh, it is. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Chris asks, wasn't that last week's uh, summary? And yes, this episode does not deal with the events of last episode. It actually picks up uh, with the the events on on tier. Anything else? I'm Thomas, and I'm going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode 8, so if you're new to the show, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles, or while arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be in the not-too-distant aftermath of a volcanic eruption, enshrined in an ashen forest of dead trees. But it's ultimately up to you. We are sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little before 8pm. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and a distant hum of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. Kylan bows perfunctorily as Gabriel steps out of the autocar. My lord? Gabriel crunches through the gravel toward him, adjusting his body camera. It's the day the Free Wolves captured Halsper's ISP, the day Alondra escaped Act 3, 15 days before her encounter with the Oracle and the first of 14 days of war on Tyr. This planet is coming apart at the seams, Gabriel growls. Where the hell is Peter's? Kylan stamps out his cigarette and casts a meaningful look to Gabriel's right. 
No idea. But these goons have been waiting for you. Gabriel turns. An unmarked van has opened up like a clown car, spilling act agents out like ants. For fuck's sake. Gabriel shoots Kyle in a dark look. Come on. Is he in there? Unless he can teleport, Kylan smirks. He's in there. One of the counterterrorism officers yells at them. Lord Burns, Mr. Helzer said you might need some backup. Gabriel turns. I need you like a dog needs lice. Fuck off. The man looks dispassionately at them, his rifle held casually in front of him. Did you hear what I said? Gabriel takes a step forward. The man shrugs. I don't answer to no regent. I answer to Mr. Helzer. Are we doing this, or what? Kylan watches Gabriel carefully, slowly twisting a ring on his finger. There were a dozen act agents. He had four snipers positioned nearby. A single bullet could be one too many. But Gabriel turns and continues towards the junk shop, the act agents in tow. Kylan looks up at the window of an adjacent building, nods to his man there, and follows them inside. The shop is dark. It had been an auto garage in a former life, and the few windows were boarded up. An electric fan heater is blowing in one corner, slowly rotating from side to side. The only illumination filters in through a skylight above them. Gabriel steps over an overturned lamp and peers down the nearest aisle, vaguely delimited by dilapidated chairs and chests of drawers. Eamon Patel? Gabriel says loudly. My name is Gabriel Burns. Do you know who I am? Something moves at the end of the aisle. The act agents bristle, their weapons clacking against their body armor like giant insects. Gabriel steps forward. Tell me what you know of the woman Kamar, Eamon. There's a fit of muffled coughing. Kylan twists his ring. The act agents spread out across the front of the shop, the silver bars at their collar glinting occasionally as they form a half-perimeter. You are suspect of conspiracy, unlawful teachings in the mystic arts, and abetting the mass murder of over 200 men and women in an act of terror, Gabriel says. Do you have nothing to say? Nothing to you, slurs a gravelly voice. Gabriel cocks an eyebrow. Mr. Patel, I am the Lord Regent of the United Star Systems. Of all the people in the universe, no one stands to more influence your fate than I. My fate? The man sputters and laughs. You have nothing to do with it. The last demoniac has arrived as he foretold. Gabriel clears his throat. <clears> throat> It's time to go, Mr. Patel. We can talk more in the comfort of a station house. I'm not going anywhere. The man sounds manic, drunk, or both. He sways out of the path of the flashlight beam. There shall be four pretenders. We shall know them all. I've done my part. And what part is that, exactly? 
Eamon creeps forward through the shadows, the light catching in his lined face like spider webbing. Verse 9. Instructions to those loyal to the crown of light. Go to the land of the handless god and there pass the first magics too. The eerie exchange is interrupted by an act agent's shout. Knife! He's got a knife! Sure enough, something glints in Eamon's hand as the sudden blast of rifle fire illuminates the room, leaving Gabriel in a flash of darkness. He staggers backwards, flips on a hand torch, and lifts it to rest on the old man's remains. A bloodied body felled awkwardly like a discarded doll, his hand still clutching a glass beer bottle, which spills the last of its contents in measured, gulping sobs. Huh. The act agent steps forward, lowering his gun. I could have sworn he had a knife. Bridget rests her head on the heels of her palms, trying to find a position of equilibrium. How many hours has it been since she last slept? She, Tarek, and Marilyn are gathered around the metal strategy table. Three days have passed since the attack on Gravenwill. Why are we still trapped down here? Bridget mumbles. We're winning, aren't we? Even she knew it was wishful thinking. Operation High Jump had been only a partial success. They'd taken HISP, but the next part of the plan had been a disaster. They'd hoped to quickly commandeer the satellite stations, but orbital control had gotten ahead of them somehow and shot down all their Trojan horses. They had Halsper and Gemini, and they had loyalists and several news outlets that were spinning things for them. A handful of other petty victories and a mounting death toll just about completed the picture. Marilyn pans across the rolled-out map screen. So look, the captured war between Missile Silo is here. This is a big advantage for Team Us, and if we're going to use it, we should do so as quickly as possible, before Cowell can prepare. Tarek leans in. The Point Claire military base. That seems like the obvious target. Bridget looks up at him. Seriously? You think any more colonial guards will defect after we shoot a missile at them? Tarek glowers at her. It's not like they're sitting on their hands. You know why we have to keep meeting down here? Because if we start meeting above ground, we'll get drone-striked into oblivion. Calm down. Marilyn wipes her glasses. Bridget is probably right. We should try to minimize loss of life. What about a drone hangar? Can we target one of those? Tarek peers at the map. Bridget leans over it, too, and her arm swings into a canteen, knocking its contents across the electric map. Whoa! Marilyn leaps to her feet and drags the map off the table. Fuck. Shit, is it okay? Marilyn shoots her an annoyed look. Let's take a break. Get a couple hours of sleep. Bridget feels a dull shame dampened by her overall exhaustion. She gets up, steadies herself on the table, and moves for the exit. Marilyn calls after her. Meet back here in three hours. We still have to figure out our blockade and plan the raid on Noble. Bridget steps out into the tunnel. It's cold. She'd borrowed a set of long underwear from Tarek. It drapes over her frame like an old, stretched-out sock, but it helps. 
She heads for her cot. Lozano. Tarek places his hand on her shoulder. She turns around. I just wanted to... Don't worry about the map, you know. It doesn't matter. Bridget starts to speak, but trails off. She shrugs. Tarek looks uncomfortable. Do you want... You know... Do you want company? Tarek, come on. Bridget makes a face. I'm about to fall over, not right now. Tarek's expression hardens. I didn't mean... Damn, Lozano. Bridget splays her arms. Well, shit, I'm 24. I know how to fall asleep on my own. Fine. Tarek walks past her. Sorry I asked. Bridget stares dully ahead for a moment before wheeling on Tarek's retreating outline. And I'm sorry we fucked, she says. The words echoing a little in the passage. He stops. Then, after a moment, he continues. Off and out of sight. Bridget slumps to her cot. She crawls gratefully into it and sprawls across the canvas, staring up at the blackness above her. Fuck you, she says aloud. Fuck you. She rolls over on her side and goes to set an alarm on her armlet before she remembers she's not wearing one. They'd confiscated it when she'd first been captured. She groans, rubs her face against the back of her arm, and feels the tiredness rushing towards her like a wave. Just before she sinks into unconsciousness, she wonders what Norell is doing. At that moment, Norell is sitting in an improvised concrete cell, perhaps an old robotics bay or a drone hangar, she thinks. The wide garage door looks like it might once have opened automatically. Now, though, it is slid out of the way by two act agents with a squeal of metal. I have to hand it to you, Norell drawls. You really nailed it with this torture technique. Leaving me alone with my thoughts? Make it stop. One of the men laughs, or caws, really. He's tall and reedy, and the other is fat with a face like rotten porridge. She hates them both equally. No torture will be necessary, Sergeant Peters, the tall one says. I feel confident that you won't be withholding. Norell fixes him with a bored stare. Do you have names, or am I destined to address you by increasingly unimaginative insults? He leers at her. I'm Bash. This is Louie. He put that injunction on you. Norell looks sympathetically at Louie. Oh, it's not very good. Louie snarls at her. Good enough. I don't see you levitating or sucking demon ass. I have to be honest, I'd rather suck demon anything than be stuck in a room with you. Bash rolls his eyes. Enough. He drags a stool from the corner and sits down in front of Norell. Now, if you want to get out of here and get your... He gestures at Norell's stump. Robot leg back. We just need you to answer a few questions. Let's start with the basics. Where is your ward? Er, uh, Brigitta Lozano. Norell is stone-faced. Easy. I don't know. Have you taught Lozano any theurgy? Of course not, Norell scoffs. 
The woman has the discipline of an eight-year-old. Bash regards her. What is the nature of the artifact you stole from Archmage Bohemir? Narelle wrinkles her nose. What? The Archmage is making a great deal of progress with his prosthetic hand. He has written that after the android attacked him and stole his books, there remained an artifact of great importance to him, but that it has since gone from his study. He would not, however, tell us what the artifact did. Nerala shakes her head. Lozano. Bash and Louis look at each other. You believe your ward stole the artifact? Bash says. Nerala grins sardonically. She probably didn't even know what it was. Bash looks dissatisfied. Louis glares at her sullenly. And I take it, he drones thickly. You don't either. Of course not, you idiot. Nerl growls at him. How would I know what Lozano stole if I didn't even know she stole it? Bash crosses his arms and looks appraisingly at her. I don't believe you, he says finally. I believe you do know something, and I believe you're going to tell us. Because what you don't know is that your daughter, Andrea, is on her way here, five days into slip, fleeing the scene of a teenage summoning gone awry. It seems that she set a bayon loose on her high school bullies, and right now, I'm the only thing between her and a ship marshal and a whole team of very nasty law enforcement officials. So what I'm saying is, if you don't tell us what you know, the next few days are going to be very unpleasant for her. Narelle blinks. Then she says, The whereabouts of my daughter and the details of her delinquency have absolutely no bearing on what I do or do not know. So please, call the ship marshal and have him do as he pleases. I'm afraid her poor behavior does not magically bestow wisdom upon me, and your threats only serve to highlight your absolute incompetence as an investigatory body. Bash stares at her with the look of someone who had just watched a dog pee on his shoes. He laughs once and stands up. Fine. I hope you're comfortable, because this storage unit is going to be your home until we get you, Lozano, and those three towel heads into matching perillas. Bash turns to the door. Oh, one more thing. Being as you're so forthcoming, if you'd had any contact with participants in the reclamation program, You'd have told us, right? Narelle is thrown. Excuse me? Coincidences are very strange. Bash runs a hand over his jaw, watching her. Reclamation cases 50HRA6 through 50HRA8 were taken from that village you halfway destroyed. Their parents were school teachers. Narelle stares at him. He grins. Just think, if it weren't for you, they might still be eating sand on earth. Louis re-ups her injunction with a phrase of mangled Engelman, and Narelle sits there, stupefied, as they slam the garage door shut. Gabriel paces around his room. It's evening. The day had been consumed with logistics, setting up accommodations for family members and improvised barracks for Regency officers that had fled Halsburg. 
They'd vacated the colony in a hurry when it became clear the guard was defecting. Gabriel's cohort pings from his desk. There is a new message on the quantum receiver, Audrey says. Gabriel stalks across the room. Mr. Harper's secret friend is more responsive than our consul. The text reads, Where are you? Point Claire Colony, he types hurriedly, then says, Audrey, will you please send the consul another conference invitation? Our appointment was an hour ago. The Arcanist, at least he guessed it was the Arcanist, is finally feeling chatty. Distracted, Gabriel finds himself venting his frustration. His parents' faces flash in his mind, and a bloodied tenement floor, empty but for a torn black bag. He unplugs the QPR. The consul is ready for you. Audrey's voice is cool and collected. Gabriel envies her. He clears his throat, adjusts his posture in the chair, and joins the video call. As usual, the consul's video is off. The consulate icon simply lights up as his saccharine voice emanates from the machine's speakers. Lord Burns, it's good to see you. Just terrible that you've been caught up in this silly civil tantrum. I think it's a terrible thing. It is disturbing, Gabriel agrees. However, it is not really my concern. The Republican army will sort everything out. I understand the entire garrison in Freya is on its way, though they are certainly taking their time. Yes, yes, we've seen all this before. Pioneers, I tell you. Ingratitude. To think, these people would be choking for breath on those rocks if it weren't for us. It truly astounds me. Gabriel presses his right thumb into his left palm, massaging his hand irritably. Sir, regarding the Ereshkigal investigation, we have, or rather had, two leads. Sergeant Peters believes that the Archmage, a known collector of theurgic writings, was attacked by an Aphrodite android. And separately, we have reason to believe that one Eamon Patel, who owned a junk shop in Radcliffe, may have conspired to bring about the summoning. Yes, yes, good, good work. Gabriel's nostrils flare. He nearly snarls his next words. Consul Dane, it is not good at all. Act three killed Eamon Patel before I was able to question him, and Sergeant Peters has disappeared from her hotel room without a trace, which I strongly suspect is their doing as well. Adam, I know we don't know each other very well, but I have to assume you endorsed me because you knew I would protect the rule of law. I urge you, order Mr. Helzer to release Sergeant Peters, get Act three out of here, and let me do my job. The consul simpers. Gabriel, you must learn to play with others. Institutional differences can be frustrating, but you are all there for a reason. Gabriel shakes his head. You're not listening to me. I am listening, yes. I hear your whining. Gabriel slams his fist against the desk. I cannot work with them here. You must recall them, or my authority is meaningless. There is quiet on the other end. A low tone sounds as the consul turns his video feed on. His face, 
a heavily padded blunt instrument, a bulldog's jowls and dark beady eyes. Lord Burns, I would like to tell you a story. It is the story of the first regent, the Queen's regent. Do you know it? Thomas Barrows. He was named Lord Regent of Magical Affairs by Queen Elizabeth I in 1559, the same year she became queen. Very good. But those are the facts. The story is quite a different thing. Gabriel frowns and leans back in his chair. Yes, settle in. You see, what your facts fail to do is imagine or ask questions. For example, your facts do not wonder. Why was the regent so called? It is a question that many have simply ceased to ask, but there is a story there, even if it has been relegated to children's books and fairy tales. You see... In that time, there were many kings and queens, all squabbling over castles, peasants, power. But there was another king, a king of no nations, the Woodland King, or more often, the Wild King. This man was said to have power over magic in a way even you could only dream of. He was said to be advised by a host of shadows, he could walk from tree to tree as if stepping through a doorway, and he wore an antlered crown of sunlight and a robe of autumn leaves. While it is impossible to determine the exact line where facts end and myth begins, there is evidence that the Wild King did exist in some form or another, and ruled over all places where the other kings could not for over a hundred years. He held court with wild beasts and gave shelter to escaped slaves and runaway serfs, and many accomplished magicians claimed to have kept his company, including Marjorie Jordamain herself. But one day, the wild king drew aside a favored lord and told him that a change was coming in the world, and that the wild king was no longer needed. He invested his power, perhaps both literally and figuratively, in this lord and named him Regent, ruling over magic in his stead. And with his final command, he ordered the Regent make his way to England to find and serve Elizabeth, first of her name in House Tudor. And so, a few days later, Thomas Barrows stumbled out of the Hertfordshire forest and pledged himself to the young queen. But the tale does not end there, for the wild king promised Barrows that he would return. Barrows waited all his life for the king's return, frequently consulting with the stars and developing theories as to when it might be. Each theory was, of course, proved wrong, and Barrows went to his death with just enough breath to appoint the next regent, and to say... His grace was never well disposed to counting time. The consul purses his lips and narrows his eyes, inspecting Gabriel carefully. Gabriel inhales deeply. What a story, indeed. 
Thank you. The consul's voice becomes a menacing growl. The point, Lord Burns, is that yours is borrowed power. Borrowed magic and a borrowed authority, granted long ago by a king, and kept ever after by the grace of kings, presidents, prime ministers, and consuls. It is not yours. It does not belong to you. And it is not your place to tell me what I must or must not do. Gabriel nods, eyes fixed to the consuls who glowers across the video feed, nearly filling the screen. I understand. Dane pretends not to hear this. He looks off camera and mutters, I have a call with the Zhang Consul. Learn to work with Act 3, and find whoever is responsible for Halspur. Gabriel leans forward. What happens when the Wild King returns? The consul turns back to the camera, eyebrows raised in surprise. Then the corners of his lips curl upward into a sneer, as if to say that this was the most vapid and absurd thing Gabriel could have asked. He says, The world ends, Lord Burns, and snaps out of sight. Light years away on the passenger ship, Andrea has inhabited a waking nightmare. Following Ereshkigal, a contingent of the travelers opened a petition to turn the ship around. They were understandably frightened, and it turned from bad to worse when the free wolves began their coup. Town halls were held, people made speeches, but ultimately what it came down to was that Christopher Cowell still nominally retained control of the planet. More importantly, there were several thousand Slade Act migrants on the manifest, and it would be a dead loss for Ganymede Interstellar if they were brought back to Chiron. As if that wasn't enough stress, Andrea was starting to get the distinct impression she was being watched. Personnel stared at her a little too long in the food lines. Guards tightened their grips on their weapons as she passed. She spent hours at night going back and forth, wondering if this was normal or if she'd really been flagged. But if that were the case, she thought, why hadn't she been dragged to the brig? She assumed the ship had a brig, but maybe it didn't. Maybe that was why. Did they still call them brigs on spaceships? She made friends with a girl on her deck who looked like her. Her name was Lario. She was the same age as Andrea, and the color of their skin was the same tawny brown. Her father was Polish and her mama was Dominican, she said. They'd lived in Queens until recently. Her dad had lost his job and gotten violent, and when they applied for a restraining order, they were told that the best thing to do would be to sign up with the Slate Act. She said she thought it was a joke at first, but here they were. Lariel suggests that Andrea should try and get close with someone on the staff. They had almost a week left in the trip, after all. Just make sure you're never completely alone with them, she says. The idea makes Andrea nervous. She had more experience flirting online than she did in person, but Lariel assures her that it will be easy. She spends a day with Lariel narrowing down likely candidates, and finally decides on a younger guard who stands by the bar entrance above Deck 7. His name was Will, and because the bar was relatively noisy, it was easy to carry on private conversations with him. Sometimes one of the other guards would come through and tell Andrea to get lost. The drinking age on USSA flights was 18. 
but she wasn't actually in the bar, and Will certainly didn't object. The two of them quickly fall into a veneer of friendship. Andrea visits him once, then twice, then three times daily. They talk first of life and slip, then of net vision shows they like, then of God and death. Andrea still doesn't know how to ask, why aren't I in space jail? But as it turns out, she doesn't have to. On the last day of their journey, Will brings it up. It's drawing close to the end of his shift, and Andrea stands on her toes to kiss him on the cheek. He smiles, then frowns, and takes a step back. I don't get it, he says. Andrea feels a flutter of nerves. Don't get what? You seem nice, I mean. He looks uncomfortable. I shouldn't be telling you this, but you're apparently some kind of dangerous criminal if the marshal's to be believed. Andrea feels a simultaneous flood of relief and fresh terror. What did the marshal tell you? Well, what do you mean? He looks stern. Is it true? Andrea blusters. No, I mean, obviously not, but there was an accident, and I, I definitely made a mistake, don't get me wrong, but I I'm not a criminal. Will gnaws on his lip and looks around furtively. Look, you seem nice, but they're planning to pick you up at Astor Station. They decided it was safer to just keep an eye on you and slip and let them arrest you at the gate. The Regency, I mean. Andrea runs to find Lariel. She half yells, half groans. What the fuck am I going to do? Can you do any magic? Lariel suggests, half joking. In truth, Andrea had been studying Jordamain's servants like it was the Holy Bible and she was a seminary student, sleeping with it under her pillow and beginning and ending her day with its meandering passages. Charles Engelman, the editor, had led a team in developing the most popular arcane lexicon since Nobru Kaze's, but it was possible that he loved words a little too much, in Andrea's opinion. His annotations on the Lord's summons were relatively straightforward, Far more confusing were loyalty bindings, chained commands, cyclical rites, and Otiker's coach, whatever that was. Andrea is about to show the book to Lariel, but quite suddenly decides against it. Most people were a little leery of magic, and even other magicians mistrusted theurgy. Engelman had tried valiantly to rebrand the practice as beyonding, a more secular term which suggested something almost whimsical, but besides the official name, nothing much had changed. Anyway, Lariel didn't even know what Andrea had done. No, of course not, Andrea makes a face. Even if I did, I don't know what good it would do. She could think of quite a lot of good it might do, actually. She just didn't know how to do any of it. Lariel frowns, wrinkling her nose and scrunching up her lips. Then her eyebrows lift, and her whole face lights up. I know, she says. You can become me. Bridget flexes her hand and conjures sparks between her fingers with satisfying crackles. She still feels a little muted, like the volume had been turned down on her, but at least she could repair her interference and feel weight behind her words again. She hears a buggy pull up behind her, heavy footsteps in the snow, and turns to see Carson approaching, holding the woman in the headscarf by her arm. 
This the one you wanted? He says, gruffly. Yes. Thanks, Carson. Wait in the car. Bridget regards the woman across from her for a minute, before asking, What's your name? Safia? She replies. Bridget grimaces. They had freed a total of 13 prisoners from Gravenwell, and to say they were disappointing would be an extreme understatement. They were simulacrists and alchemical drug dealers, enchanter, rapists, and charlatan healers. Except for one. You were in the square during the Free Wolves riot, Bridget says, when I put everyone to bed. I remember, Safia says. The shadow scar on Bridget's arm twinges painfully. She grits her teeth. Not only that, but I understand your brother is the one who smashed that magic urn and turned the Republic building into a rubble heap. Safia's eyes flash. It wasn't what he wanted. Yusuf does not do magic. But you do. Safia looks down. Yes. Bridget nods slowly. Where are we? Safia asks, a little peevishly, Bridget thinks. She turns and surveys the icy cement lot. It was almost like an enormous basketball court. Almost. It had three ominous crop circles depressed in its surface, anti-aircraft units at each corner, and a nearby elevator panel from which Tarek is now stepping. This is a missile silo, Bridget says, regarding Tarek warily. We captured it in a surprise attack two nights ago. Safia nods. So, why am I here? You're here to use that shielding spell of yours to deflect any UAVs, Tarek says, pacing towards them. The anti-aircraft arrays should give you a heads up, but some of the things can evade wave detection. He hands a pair of binoculars to Safia and clears his throat. Hopefully after today we won't have to worry about him so much. Bridget purses her lips and looks past Tarek. Everything set down there? Sure, Tarek nods. And we still don't know where Cowell is hiding. Tarek glares at her. The cowards disappeared, and this won't be over till we find him. We need him to hand over power on net vision, or else put his fucking head on a pike. He pulls his walkie-talkie out of his belt and walks away, grumbling into it. A shadow falls over Bridget's vision, and she feels another twinge in her arm. She winces and looks up. A cycloinhibitor is passing over them, some 200 miles above. A buzzer sounds as the missile bay doors open. Bridget looks at Safia. Okay, let me see your force shells. Once the weapon system is activated, we'll need to be on the lookout. Hesitantly, Safia waves her hand behind a wavy blue barrier. Bridget scoffs. <laughs> You're telling me that's what stopped you and your brother from being pulverized? Safia scowls. I can still feel the spell on me. The magic that stops me from doing magic. Bridget nods and unscrews the cap on her water bottle. It's called a stricture, or an injunction. And it's been a few days, so... Let me see what I can do about that. Holding the bottle between her hands, 
She leans over its mouth and whispers the words she'd heard Norell use back in the Archmage's tower. Then she hurls its contents at Safia, splashing her in the face. Hey, she yowls. Bridget laughs. <laughs> Try again. We need to be able to deflect a small payload. It might be 500, even 1,000 pounds of pressure. Safia glares at Bridget. Where is my brother now? Before Bridget can reply, an alarm goes off within the recesses of the silo. At first, Bridget isn't sure if it's normal, just indicating the countdown to launch or something. She grabs her binoculars and scans the sky for drones. She doesn't see anything like a drone, however. Through the binoculars, she sees a black dot hanging in the sky above them. It looks like a hole in the sky, growing slowly larger and larger. For a moment, Bridget is transported. She is nine years old, staring in awe at the bright wound in the evening sky. There has been some kind of collision in Earth's orbit. A satellite is falling, landing outside El Paso. Experts expected it to break up on re-entry and vaporize, but the experts are wrong. She clutches her blanket tight and shrinks into her hiding place as the mass of flaming metal buries itself in the horizon. Safia grabs at Bridget's jacket, shocking her from her reverie. What is it? Bridget looks around. The gunner stationed at the anti-aircraft battery is staring at the sky, shoulders slack. They dropped something. From the cycloinhibitor. What did they drop? Safia backs away. Can we deflect it? Bridget's mind is racing. She shakes her head. No, she says. We can't. She looks at the elevator panel, at the gunners, at the buggy. Tarek. Tarek? She yells. We have to go. What? We have to go. Now, Safia, get in the car. Pull yourself together. Tarek turns away from her. Whatever it is, we'll shoot it down. Bridget steps towards him. We can't shoot that down, Tarek. Come on. I'm not leaving. Bridget looks back at the buggy, then takes a breath, wheels on Tarek, and howls. Zhuzhan konporiansu. Tarek's eyes glaze out of focus. Come on. Bridget grabs him by the arm, and he trots after her as she drags him towards the buggy. He has trouble getting in. Safia helps Bridget pull him physically on board. Carson's unnerved. What did you do to him? Just drive, Bridget shouts, buckling Tarek into his safety belt like a child. The motor roars, and she grasps a rail for support as they jerk forward, spraying ice and gravel behind them as they wheel and speed back the way they'd come. Safia looks up at the falling object, a massive, dark, almost amorphous shape spinning towards them out of the heavens. Hands shaking, she and Bridget put on their own harnesses. Everything speeds up after that. Bridget looks behind them and freezes, watching helplessly as something the size of a house hurtles to the ground behind them. She looks at Safia and sees the fear on her face. Shield! she shouts but Safia is petrified. Then comes the impact, a noise incomprehensible. 
the shockwave hits them, and the buggy goes flying over itself as hot air slams into them. Bridget's ears are ringing. Her fingers grasp awkwardly, patting her legs and arms, checking for wet. Safia is alive. So is Tarek. Carson is unconscious. Blood trickles from his head where it struck the steering wheel. The buggy is on its side. She removes her harness and falls onto the ground. Her legs are shaking so badly she can barely stand. What was that? Safia gasps. How did they do that? Bridget looks out over the gray earth and flattened trees. She couldn't see the silo, whatever was left of it. But the blast had actually melted snow a few hundred feet away. Anger bubbles in her stomach, and she slams open the clasps on Safia's harness and pulls her roughly to her feet. You want to see your brother again? The next time I need help, fucking help me. Safia stutters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was scared. Fuck you. Bridget forces back tears. We got lucky. I watched the NetVision coverage. I know you can do better. She pushes Safia away and stumbles, breathing hard. They were waiting for us. They must have... Bridget looks up at the sky. How many cycloinhibitors were there? They seemed to pass every 15 minutes or so. We have to get back underground. With a little coaxing, Tarek helps them push the buggy back onto its wheels. How fogged was he going to be once the spell wore off? Bridget didn't have time to think about that. There's an abandoned above-ground robotics facility that connected to the honeycomb by a ramp. They drive back there in silence, Bridget at the wheel and Safia tending to Carson's head wound. As they approach, the sinking feeling in Bridget's stomach reaches up and wraps itself around her throat. Her arm spasms in pain and she nearly swerves into a fallen tree. What's wrong? Sophia looks up and inhales sharply. Broken branches littered the ground, and as they drive on, Bridget is forced to weave between burnt trunks and rubble. They slow to a crawl, and finally stop some distance from the crater, just to the side of the facility's remains. <sighs> okay. Bridget forces herself to take deep breaths. New plan. She looks at Safia. Anybody have a new plan? In the cramped office of a reclamation records keeper, Gabriel sits hunched and looming in the small metal chair, leafing through a file with growing impatience. How could you just lose it? Her psych evals, her proclivity tests, you're telling me it's all gone? The woman behind the desk was positively desiccated. A starving hyena might have looked the other way. No one born on tier grew particularly tall, but she looked like she wouldn't clear four feet standing. These are the files we have on 50HRA6. You already looked at the digital archive. I don't know what to tell you, Mr. Burns. Gabriel casts a look at Kylan. Kylan raises his eyebrows at him. 
Why isn't this in the Alliance ledger? Gabriel turns back to the records keeper. She purses her lips. We don't track reclamation cases in the ledger. We do it all locally. Gabriel buries his face in his hands. Jesus, Moses, Mohammed, and Dick. Kylan leans forward. Doesn't Ithaca version control everything to an encrypted server? Gabriel looks up sharply. Yes. He snaps his fingers. Bring up the terminal again. The records keeper looks annoyed. Why? Your computer system backs up everything automatically. It's part of the service subscription. We can search the version history as well as the current files. Terminal! The woman shrinks. Her hands waver. Gabriel Sands. Miss Walder. Has Act 3 been here? The woman's whole demeanor changes. They're going to kill me. She hisses the words. Gabriel's hands flex in anger. No, they'll torture you first, and I'll let them if you don't cooperate. I do not like being lied to, Miss Walder, so hand my associate the terminal and tell me the truth. Still shaking, the records keeper pushes the terminal towards Kylan. His fingers thrum against the keyboard as Gabriel resumes his questioning. So, tell me again. Do you recall 50HRA6 through 50HRA8? Their given names, Kamar, Safia, and Yusuf. The woman nods. Gabriel continues. You must have seen hundreds of reclaimed children of Afghanistan pass through this facility. What was special about these three? The woman struggles to take a sip of water from her glass. The eldest, Kamar, she... The other children were scared of her. And she was obsessed with demonology. Of course, we prohibit all writings on the subject, but she would find it anyway. She joined a group for it on our approved social network. We didn't find out for weeks because they spoke in code. We often punished her for drawing pentagrams and other theurgic runes, but she never changed. She was very secretive about it. I don't think anyone but the staff knew. And only then because we had security cameras and monitored their time on the net and so on. Gabriel leans in. And the proclivity tests. She takes a deep breath. All three of them demonstrated a very high latent ability in magic. I have never seen those kinds of results, and I have been here for over 50 years. Got it. Kylan shuts off the terminal and wags his armlet in the air. They deleted the files yesterday, but we have them now. Thank you, Ithaca. Good. Gabriel buttons his coat. Put this facility under surveillance until Act 3 is long gone. They head for the door. Gabriel turns. Oh, one more thing. The proclivity tests. Who scored highest? The eldest? The woman shakes her head. No. It was the boy. The youngest. Yusuf. Bridget isn't quite sure how things could get worse. Carson is alive. That's something. 
If he hadn't woken up, they might be freezing to death in the woods right now. Still, maybe that was preferable. The four of them are sitting in a shuttered rocket burger. According to Carson, the owner was one of us, which meant he was pretty sure he wouldn't turn them in. Great. A muted netvision loop plays on a small laptop. The owner, whose name is Bellum Cross, offers them synthetic coffee. Bridget and Carson each have some. Tarek sits amiably in a corner booth, his jaw slack, staring absently at the laptop screen. Carson watches him. Is he going to be okay? He asks. He's just fogged. Bridget glances at Tarek and looks away hurriedly. I overdid it a little, so sue me. He'll be fine. Bellum sits down with them, and Bridget swears she can feel the whole booth sink into the floor. He is a huge man, his dark brown skin creased with age and scars. Long, gray dreadlocks fall over his shoulders, and when his hands were still, you might be forgiven for thinking they'd been carved from wood. If I'm not mistaken, he growls, I was unlucky enough to be on the receiving end of that a couple weeks ago. Was that only two weeks ago? Bridget presses her hands to her temples. Different spell. Also, you were at the Rocket Burger protest? You run a Rocket Burger. Not anymore, I don't. <laughs> Corporate told me I could fire my staff and install those automated service bots or fire my staff and close up shop. I don't like being given choices like that, so I chose the latter. It's dead space, so they send along a new manager to pick up the keys. Bridget frowns. You know no one wants to flip burgers, right? Isn't it better to have machines do it? Sure. Bellum nods. And if my burger flippers were also certified machine technicians, it wouldn't be such a kick in the nuts. Bridget lets out a frustrated <laughs> and turns to Carson. Look, how do we get in touch with Cosgrove? Where are the other honeycomb entrances? Hold it. Bellum heaves himself to the laptop and unmutes it. Seventeen bystanders were killed, bringing the civilian death toll past 100 today, when a series of heavy payloads were dropped onto older structures at the colony perimeters. Commander Cowell has been cloistered in an unknown safe house since the Free Wolves' rebellion escalated, but we have here now an official statement from his office. The newscaster reads from her tablet. First, I must commend the people of Tyr for staying strong in the face of a string of vicious attacks. It is confusing and tragic when an otherwise peaceful community is disrupted by a malicious agent. It is with a heavy heart, but great hope, that I inform you today that this malicious agent has been killed. Tarek Longsend was supervising a deadly missile launch early this morning when we carried out our coordinated strike. Bridget stands up. Is this one of ours? Bellum nods. We have to get on the air. What? Carson stands up as well. They've clearly flipped. They'll trace the call. Bridget throws her arms wide. Then we'll move. We can't hide here forever. If people believe Tarek is dead, the rebellion dies with them. So we have about 60 seconds to set the record straight while people are still watching. Carson shakes his head. Absolutely not. We have to regroup. I am Longson's regent. 
The words ring false in her mouth, but she says them anyway. I outrank you. Get me on the air. Carson spits. Go fuck yourself. You've turned Tarek Longsend into a vegetable, and if we hadn't raided Gravenwill Center to find more freaks for you to manage, they would never have known we were in the honeycomb. Bridget turns to Bellum. Call in. Carson hits her. Hard. She falls to the ground, dazed. Carson gets on top of her and covers her mouth with his hand. Bridget struggles, but her arms are pinned. He raises his arm. Fuck you, he yells, and brings down his arm like a hammer. A shimmer of blue light explodes around his fist, and Bridget winces at the sound. Carson yelps and falls backwards. Sophia stands by the booth, her hand raised, a pained expression on her face. Bridget pushes herself upright, her eyes on Sophia. Thank you, she says, then turns to Bellum. Now, call in. Their plant, the media station, sounds as shell-shocked as they are. You're alive? Yes, Bridget says. And next time, maybe don't switch your allegiance at the drop of a hat, no matter how big the hat is. There's quiet on the other end. One second. They watch the newscaster receive a note. We, uh, we have a call in, she says, from the Longson Regent. Bellum shoots Bridget a heavy look. You better know what you're doing, he says. The newscaster lets out a nervous laugh. Hello? Are you hearing me? This is Valentina Gonzalez. Hi, Valentina. This is Bridget Lozano. Isn't it strange that the people who claim to protect these colonies would see nothing wrong with bombarding them from the sky? That's not a coordinated strike. That's the desperate lash of a usurped ruler. What? The newscaster begins to speak, but Bridget cuts her off. I have a message to the colonists in Point Clare and Galen's Lock, to the Colonial Guard and the Freyan Army, wherever the fuck they are. A planetary rep should protect and advocate on behalf of that planet's residents, not simply kowtow to the consul and drop improvised meteors on us, killing 17 innocent people in the process. So ask yourselves, whose side are you on? And who do you think is a better representative of Tyr? Christopher Cowell or Tarek Longsend? The words hang in the air a moment. Bridget watches the newscaster carefully, waiting for the inevitable objection. But Tarek Longsend is dead, Valentina says helplessly. No, he isn't, Bridget says. In fact, he's right here. She pushes the laptop towards Tarek, leans over, and hisses in his ear. Say, for a free wolf... Tarek nods serenely. For a free woof, he says slowly. Bridget shuts the laptop. Close enough, she mutters. Let's get out of here. Bellum shoulders a bag. Where are we going? Buggy's kind of conspicuous and we sure as shit can't use the network. We can't stay on the surface and we can't go back underground. Bridget looks at each of the crew. We need to get above them. The cycloinhibitors. The question is... How? Bellum's armlet pings, and he frowns down at it. What is it? Bridget says, agitated. 
It's Cosgrove. Bellum looks up at her. The colonial guard and noble just defected. She says Galen's Lock and Point Claire are expected to follow. Bridget looks at him for a long moment. Good, she says at last. Does one of them have a fleet we can borrow? Becoming L'Oreal wasn't exactly a simple process. It took almost an hour just to straighten Andrea's hair, and another hour of futzing with makeup before L'Oreal declared Andrea sufficiently unlike yourself. Andrea took L'Oreal's plastic ID card, and they cut up Andrea's. But the last and most important piece of the puzzle was L'Oreal's microchip. All Sladax transportees had one, embedded in the soft flesh between their thumb and forefinger. This would need to be removed and transferred to Andrea. Not only that, L'Oreal felt strongly that they should put something that looked like a microchip in its place, so that it wouldn't be immediately obvious what they'd done. That didn't exactly make sense to Andrea, but perhaps it was better than nothing. L'Oreal had only seen the chip briefly before they injected it. Now it was just a dark dot beneath her skin. What about a grain of rice? Andrea suggests after a moment. You know, the dark kind. L'Oreal nods. That would be great. They scour the decks for any camp in possession of black rice, before finally a Chinese couple gives them a bag. They were well-dressed, and their tent was expensive-looking. Political refugees, I bet, L'Oreal explains to Andrea. That happens quite frequently, I've read. They can't stay permanently in the U.S. or Europe, but they can sign up for the Slate Act in Seattle as refugees. They cloistered themselves in a lavatory where someone had smashed the security camera. When and for what purpose was of no concern, but the stalls were frequented by grateful addicts and horny couples. L'Oreal sits on the toilet and explains her mother's first aid kit to Andrea. We can use the alcohol to clean the rice before swapping it in. Oh, and that's the bonding tape. It's terrific. It pulls the skin together so you can't even tell there was a cut sometimes. They have no scalpel, so they use a Swiss army knife and a pair of tweezers, which they sterilize first with alcohol, then with a lit match. L'Oreal lays out the order of operations. You'll make the incision, extract the chip and lay it on the cloth, replace it with the rice, then lay a strip of bonding tape across the cut. Andrea can feel her breath tightening in her chest. Are you sure about this? I don't know if I can do this. You can. Come on, this will work. Do you have a better idea? Andrea's hand tightens around the black coin in her pocket. Maybe it was her imagination, but it always felt warm to the touch. Like the book, she kept the token on her person at all times. But while a demon servant could do many things, she didn't think it could smuggle her from Astor Station to Halsburg. She nods. Okay. They both grimace as Andrea puts the knife to L'Oreal's skin. For God's sake, get it over with, L'Oreal says. Andrea pushes the knife in. They both gasp. There is so much more blood than Andrea expected. It fills the wound, completely obscuring the chip. Come on, come on, get it out. I can't see. Andrea, I've seen more blood on my period. Get the tweezers. 
Andrea's hands are profuse with sweat. She fumbles the tool and drops it into the wound. Lariel winces. Andrea stammers an apology and secures her grip, probing awkwardly until she clips something hard and metallic. Got it, she breathes. She transfers the bloody object to the towel and exchanges it for the grain of rice. She wipes away some of the blood, and after a few attempts, extracts a strip of tape from its packet. As Lariel pinches her skin together, Andrea presses the tape over the cut. The microchip was larger than the rice, and more pill-shaped, like a capsule. And it was hard to tell if the rice was even visible beneath Lariel's skin, what with all the blood. But it was in there, anyway. Lariel trades places with Andrea. Your turn. In contrast to Andrea, Lariel is quick and efficient, with steady hands. Andrea feels an odd pang, whether of guilt or gratitude she isn't sure. Hardly before she can adjust to the pain of the initial cut, the chip is dropped in and the gash taped together. The intercom buzzes, and they start in surprise. Deck one, head to the central column now. We are about to arrive at Astor Station, and will begin deboarding shortly. Andrea looks at Lariel. I should go get my stuff together. Lariel nods, tidying up the first aid kit and getting to her feet. Me too, she says. Andrea extends her arms for a hug. Lariel ducks between them and pecks Andrea on the lips. Don't forget me, she says, her eyes wide. Andrea thinks that if she lived to be a thousand, she would never forget those huge dark eyes and that kiss. Then Lariel is gone, and Andrea is alone in the bathroom stall, her blood fluttering in her veins. She breaks her hand held into pieces, flushes the pieces, and leaves the bathroom in a daze. She collects her few clothes and toiletries, and joins the throng of passengers waiting to climb up to the central column, where they would float to the jet bridge. She stays low and exchanges furtive glances with the ship guards, but their orders were to let her off. The Regency was waiting on the other side. She scans Lariel's ticket at the airlock checkpoint and launches herself onto the jet bridge, floating down the wide cloth tube ringed with metal bars that connected their ship to the gate. It's cold. She tries to pull herself along quickly, three rungs at a time. At the gate, there's a grav pad and a station where she has to show Lariel's ID and scan her chip. Lariel Dabrowski, she says, the sound awkward on her tongue. She sees a trio of Regency officers eyeing her from behind the attendance station. One points at his handheld and then to her. Andrea quickly turns her head away and shoves her hands deep into her pockets. The attendant shakes his head at the ROs. This one's slate act. I could swear. Hey, girl, let me have a look at you. Andrea turns slowly, her mind racing. What photo did they have? One of the ROs paces past the attendant station and looks hard at her. What's your name? He asks. Lariel Dabrowski? She says again, feeling like an idiot. The attendant raises his voice, annoyed. She scanned her chip, okay? Andrea looks up at the officer, 
hoping her real fear fit the circumstances, hoping her going to the prom transformation was enough. The RO frowns down at her. Take your hands out of your pockets. Andrea freezes. What? Let me see your hand. Andrea squeezes the Beyonder's token between her fingers, panic welling in her. Before she can do anything, though, one of the other ROs paces over and hisses in the man's ear. It's the wrong girl. The last thing we want is the Peters girl to see us dragging someone off who looks like her. The man casts one last look at her, then allows himself to be pulled away, back to lurk out of sight of the jet bridge. Andrea joins the crowd of migrants headed for the shuttles, stepping off the accelerator and floating along the concourse. She finds her shuttle number and trails into the queue to board. It actually worked. Andrea dares to think it. It actually worked. An official of some kind floats to the gate. He's wearing a white and blue uniform, a taser and baton secured prominently at his hip. He slams his fist against a button and speaks into the intercom. Take your goddamn time, he says. We've got 5,000 people coming off this carrier. He turns to the waiting passengers. I'm Ensign Bomer, Orbital Control, a.k.a. your welcoming committee. I assume you've heard about the civil disturbance in the colonies. There's nothing to worry about. Point Claire is just as good of a human dumping ground as Halsper. But there may be some delays getting you to the ground. He clears his throat and looks up and down the queue. No questions? Good. He places his hand on the gate controls. Welcome to Tyr, he smirks. You get used to it. The airlock hisses and the gate slides up. Pulling themselves through from the shuttle are three colonial guards, their weapons drawn. The ensign's jaw hangs open. What are you... He starts, before one of the guards shoots him in the chest. The crowd panics. Eyes wide, Andrea brings up her leg and steps off the queue handrail, pushing herself up towards the ceiling, grabbing for a handhold. Colonial guards stream from the shuttle. They move quickly to other gates, overpowering the controllers and opening the airlocks, allowing more soldiers to eject themselves into the concourse. The passengers, meanwhile, are flailing in the zero-gravity environment, kicking and screaming at each other in efforts to escape. Instead, they mill in a cloud of human terror. Andrea's eyes fall on Ensign Bomer. The force of the bullet has carried his body backwards, his arms and legs floating forward as blood trails from his heart and wobbling round globs. She looks away, feeling sick. Scrabbling at a ventilation pipe, she pulls herself back the way she'd come. Other passengers begin to kick their way up to her level. One of them grabs at her leg, trying to pull himself past her. She kicks at his face, connecting with a clumsy thwack, and with a grunt of effort, she heaves herself forward and lets go of the pipe, gliding towards the terminal proper. As she approaches the end of the concourse where it meets the main terminal, she sees a pack of colonial guards moving below her. Beyond, she recognizes the two Regency officers from before, with a trio of black-clad strangers. Between them, they carry an odd-looking black bag, and their guns are drawn.
Andrea gasps for air and whirls her arms. She somehow manages to grab hold of the two-foot metal lip that hangs down above her, and with her teeth clenched, she pulls herself up behind it, her knuckles pale and every muscle in her body tensed against the shallow cover. The colonial guards are taken by surprise. One of the ROs casts some kind of spell, another takes a bullet in the neck. But the men in the black body armor bring the encounter to a swift conclusion. The colonial guards' forward movement stopped. Their bodies rotate slowly over themselves in an expanding constellation of blood. The remaining RO and the black-clad agents kick themselves up to the ceiling and out of sight, their cargo in tow. Andrea tries to quiet her breathing. They must only be a dozen feet away, on the other side of the steel soffit. What the fuck is going on? Andrea recognizes the voice, the RO from the carrier gate. What does it look like? This voice was new. The colonial guards flipped like an omelet and the free wolves are taking over Aster Station. What do we do with the girl? She's not your responsibility anymore. We have a shuttle waiting in the far concourse. And what am I supposed to tell my superior about this? Tell him there is no this. We've wiped her name from the manifest. We've removed all trace of her journey from the shuttle port to Octavia Hellman and on. As far as you're concerned, Andrea Peters no longer exists. This is not your jurisdiction. I have an arrest warrant. What do you have? This, comes a third voice. It's followed by a gunshot. Andrea shudders reflexively. The RO's body drifts back into her view. She makes eye contact with the man as he falls away from her. His incredulous blue eyes so much lighter than the Regency blue at his collar. His hands grasping at nothing as the life leaves his body. Let's go, the third voice says. No time like the present. There is a scuffing of heels on metal, then nothing. From below her, the screaming of the crowd fades back into Andrea's consciousness. She is frozen, still pressing herself into the corner of the ceiling. She's not sure how long she's pressed there before a colonial guardsman pushes his way up to her. Hey, he says. It's okay. We're not going to hurt you. Andrea looks at him. He's brown-eyed and brown-faced, but for a moment she sees the dead R.O. in his features. Or was it the ensign? Something about the cheekbones, she thinks. Then he takes off his helmet, and it's gone. I'm Oscar, he says. What do I call you? She looks at him. Did you hear me? He says. Are you okay? Andrea nods. Good. He wets his lips nervously. It's going to be okay, he says. What's your name? This was episode eight of The Elendred. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, 
produced by Janelle Yi and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. Our theme music is by Joe Mendick. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Camille Sohit, Janelle Yi, Chris Garber, Mason Quilty, and Toro Adeyemi. Thank you for listening. This story will continue next week. Hey, gentle listeners. Just wanted to thank you one more time for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. This show is called Thomas Tells a Story. You can follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. If you love the show and want to keep it going, there are a few things you can do to help. Most importantly, engage with us. Uh, If you have questions or comments, please reach out directly on Twitter or ask a question on the subreddit, and we'll actually try to address those questions on the air in a future episode. You can also leave us a review or a rating. And lastly, if you have the means, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. Thanks, folks. See you next week.